Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. In the late 18th century, the English resort town of Bath was known for its fanciful galas. Bath is mentioned for its ballroom festivities in a few of Jane Austen's novels, including Pride and Prejudice, where the reticent and reclusive aristocratic bachelor Mr. Darcy falls in love with the vivacious, opinionated commoner Elizabeth Bennet. There is a brief scene in the novel where several characters are sitting in a library, among them Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth Bennet, Mr. Darcy's amicable and conciliatory friend Mr. Bingley, and Mr. Bingley's insufferable vain sister Caroline, who is at every turn trying to impress the taciturn Darcy. There is small talk among them about going to a ball. Caroline, thinking Darcy finds no pleasure in such things, remarks in his hearing, quote, I should like balls infinitely better if they were carried on in a different manner. But there is something insufferably tedious in the usual process of such a meeting. It would surely be much more rational if conversation instead of dancing made the order of the day, end quote. To which her kind-hearted brother replies, quote, Much more rational, my dear Caroline, I dare say, but it would not be near so much like a ball, end quote. I think Mr. Bingley is spot on. Rationality has its place, but so does a good ballroom dance. In reality, some of the music for ballroom dancing at Bath was composed by the same gentleman who discovered the planet Uranus in 1781, William Herschel. And like Mr. Bingley, Herschel also had a sister named Caroline. Caroline helped William with a multitude of discoveries in the heavens, including star clusters and a host of binary star pairs. You might say that William and Caroline were the first to discover dancing with the stars. By the turn of the 19th century, there had been a discovery of two other planets which orbited the Sun between Mars and Jupiter. Astronomers named these new planets Ceres and Pallas. But unlike the major planets, Ceres and Pallas were quite small. Herschel, seeing them in his telescope, thought they looked just like stars, not disc-like as other planets appeared to be. It is said Herschel coined the term asteroid to describe these small objects, The term asteroid simply means star-like, aster meaning star, and oid meaning like. The term stuck, and we now know that Ceres and Pallas are not planets, but asteroids, small, rocky objects that do indeed orbit between Mars and Jupiter. There are currently now over a million known asteroids, which are over a half mile in diameter, that orbit between Mars and Jupiter. And since the Herschel's time, finding, naming, and classifying objects in the universe has been quite a dance.
And indeed, astronomy is a kind of dance. The planets twirling and spinning around like dancers in a ballroom, tuned into the enigmatic measures of the heavens. There is mathematical elegance, aesthetic wonder and charm, the excitement of discovery, and, well, maybe it's a little like falling in love. The stars are a beautiful part of the grandest of narratives, love. As Elizabeth notes in her quiotic turnabout with a recluse gentleman bachelor, quote, It is your turn to say something now, Mr. Darcy. I talked about the dance. You ought to make some kind of remark on the size of the room or the numbers of couples, end quote. Astronomy certainly is about the numbers, the diameters, and the distances of heavenly objects, but it is also about dancing and discovering, about the joy and delight of finding new worlds. If you've ever watched a live NASA broadcast of a probe landing on a distant world, you've seen the technicians and scientists erupt in cheers and hugs as they celebrate their accomplishments. Astronomy is much more than just gas and dust and numbers. The science team uh, assembled 545 this morning for a chance to see that best image of Pluto and to react to it and to have a little bit of a scientific discussion. And uh, I think we're going to give you a peek into it if we can cue it up. Mike Brown, an astronomer who in the early 2000s helped discover a host of never-before-seen objects that led to the demise of Pluto's planetary status, shares the story of how his then three-year-old daughter Lila quickly figured out why her astronomer daddy would periodically leave the house for several days. Daddy, are you going to talk about planets? Lila, Brown says, absolutely loved planets, with Jupiter being her favorite. Lila was always quick to point out pictures of Jupiter whenever she saw them and could even rightly identify Venus in the sky. On one particular trip, Brown called Lila from the airplane to tell her to look at the beauteous triangle of the moon, Jupiter, and Venus hanging together over the western horizon. Brown notes that, quote, Even when we were continents apart, we would always be looking for things that moved in the sky, end quote. How wonderful it is that the planets played a role in building a bond between a father and a daughter. I think the poet Dante was correct when he wrote at the end of his Divine Comedy that it is finally love that moves the sun and other stars. Indeed it is. The heavens declare the glory of God, and God is love. His banner over us, the heavens, is an expression of his love and glory. As Colossians tells us, quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I talk about some of the objects Brown and his team found moving in the sky, 
objects that ignited quite a dance around how things in the heavens ought to be classified. So, why exactly was Pluto's planetary status revoked? What exactly are these new objects which were to blame for such a cosmic kerfuffle? And what in the world is a planet anyway? So sit back and relax, and hopefully Wayne and I were able to answer these questions in an informative and entertaining way. As we begin, I should note here that I had a chuckle about some of the names given to these newly discovered objects, but in no way was that intended as any disrespect toward the cultures from which these names came, as I hope comes across. So come and see what demoted Pluto on this episode of Good Heavens. Well, good heavens, Wayne. You know, I just discovered something. Do you know what it was? What's that, Dan? Make make. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing uh, that. Maki maki. It's ma- maki maki. I think. And then gong gong. <laughs> yes, gong gong. It sounds like it was named by a five-year-old. Or make make. Or <laughs> I don't know. Maki maki and gong gong, and uh, and what are the. <laughs> What uh, Quayawar is the one I like. Quayawar, a lot of interesting things. Yeah, Quayawar. and then you have Orcus. It's a real interesting one. Uh, uh, and then there's a uh, Celasia. I don't even know if I'm. I, we don't know if we're pronouncing these names. And and forgive us. We're not meaning to intentionally make fun of somebody else's language. Obviously, that's what these names are. But uh, name names, Wayne. These are these are strange things, and um, I think it's fitting because uh, the names of these things uh, they're, they're, they're names of things that are even more strange. Um, uh, perhaps in the last twenty years, uh, this is these are these are things that we have named in the last twenty years. Things out in the cosmos, Wayne. What are we talking about? What is this maki maki and gong gong and and these other names? What are we talking about tonight? What is this? Well, they're they're kind of uh, small objects. Or small is a relative term, I guess. But these are what's called dwarf planets. Dwarf planets. Now, these aren't uh, the Hubble Space Telescope hasn't found uh, Disney characters dancing about on the surface of these planets, have they? <laughs> no, I don't think they've named any after Disney characters. But I don't know why not. And uh, uh, so that's. <laughs> And in case you, in case you're wondering, um, <clears throat> turn off the broadcast or pause it right now and see if you can name all seven dwarfs. Uh, uh, Wayne, can you name? How many can you name? Uh, I know there was one called Dopey. Dopey, yeah, you got one out of seven. That's the only one I remember. And if you would have asked me ten minutes ago, I, I might have named three. Um, but uh, Doc, Grumpy, Happy, Sleepy, Bashful, Sneezy, Dopey. Kind of sounds like how you were feeling the last couple of weeks, right? Dopey, yes, sneezy, uh, I, yeah, and sleepy. Fact, I, <laughs> I I had COVID, but it was mostly like a cold. It was pretty mild. Yes, me. yeah. Well, we're glad you recovered. You had COVID, and I had a tornado. So that's where we've been. <laughs> yes. So that was probably scary for you. It was a very terrifying five minutes. I've never heard wind roaring like I did, um, and the tornado. Mm-hmm. It was probably about five, half a mile from our house. Uh, did uh, did did some damage, uh, mostly like small metal buildings and uh, trees and things. And one family lost their house, um, but uh, they were okay. Um, but it it could have done a lot worse. It was an EF one, and uh, yeah, it was really scary. But um, that is uh, that is Earth. Sometimes that is 
The way life is the in the cosmos. Of, the forces of nature. Forces of nature, indeed. Yes. yes. Um, but tonight we are going to uh, leave planet Earth for just a little bit and delve into the world of dwarf planets and uh, want to avoid the error of J.R.R. Tolkien, who uh, mistakenly, and this is quite a gaffe considering that Tolkien was a philologist, someone who loved language, he called the dwarfs in his book, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, he called them dwarves. But that is not the plural of dwarfs. It is dwarfs. So, oh. uh, yeah, I didn't. I did. I, I thought we talked about that. Um, I don't remember talking about that. Yeah, I, I thought. I've, well, maybe I wasn't talking to you about it. I know I've talked about it before, but uh, anyway, we're no, talking about. I didn't. <clears throat> well, you're you're the one who was an English teacher, Dan, not me. So. <laughs> I still want to say dwarves, though. I can totally understand <laughs> why that's better than dwarfs, right? Um, but anyway, that's what we're going to talk about today. Dwarf planets, not a planet where dwarves, dwarfs, look at I just did it, dwarfs live. <laughs> <laughs> not a planet where uh, dwarfs live. Right, a, right. Uh, a small object that is not a planet. A small object that is not a planet. And uh, there are uh, eight or ten and, of them. Uh, Dan, small doesn't mean real small like a something you can hold in your hand it's no there are something something around hundreds of kilometers in diameter but yes there's a ge not general agreement on how small they would be and still be called a dwarf planet yeah and this term dwarf planet uh was coined by a guy a gentleman a scientist a planetary scientist named alan stern and he presented his concept of dwarf planet to the International Astronomical Union in 2006. So dwarf planet as a term, Wayne, in the history of astronomy, is only 17 years old. How about that? Yeah. <clears throat> That's pretty cool. But before we get into the dwarf planet, I think, and you mentioned this before we turn the mics on, let's define planet because that's not as easy as it might sound. Right? There's a lot of spherical objects and semi-spherical objects floating about in the cosmos. What makes right. a planet a planet? Like, to me, I know we've had this conversation before, or at least I've thought about it in my head, so maybe I've just had this conversation with myself. But to me, you look at Jupiter, right, or Saturn, and compare it to Earth. Now, all of those are in the category of planet, but, but look how radically different. About the only thing that Earth and Jupiter have in common <laughs> is that they're semi-spherical and they go around the sun. But in terms of like what they're made of, what they look like, how big they are, it's like comparing a, a basketball maybe to a, a ping pong ball or something. It's just remarkable the differences. Yeah, even in the category different. of Yeah, even in the category of planet, there is such a variety. It, it, it makes your head spin trying to keep these categories. But let's talk about the category of planet as astronomers understand it. So before we get into dwarf planet. Yes, this is, we need to start with that. And this was a definition that was done in 2006. And there's been various scientists that complain about it and don't like it. <laughs> uh, it's not always used all the time. It's kind of a... I discovered there's at least one other definition for planet that is uh, used by planetary scientists. Planetary scientists who really study planets don't usually go by this definition. 
<laughs> even though it's the official definition. So the, it has three points in the definition. And the first rule is, it's basically three rules about that has to be a, met in order to be a planet. Uh, the first rule is it has to orbit around our sun. Okay. Check. Okay, that's an easy one, right? Yeah. And then the second one, it's got to have... Well, now, Enough you know, mass. it's interesting. Let me interrupt you there, Wayne. It's really interesting. Okay. If that was the only characteristic about a planet, you and I would be planets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just yes. a thought. Just a thought. You know, you, so you need more clarity and precision. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, we need a little more than that to go on. <laughs> right. So uh, the next rule is it's got to have enough mass to... Uh, it, to do what what they call hydrostatic equilibrium, so that means that its its gravity pulls it into a stable shape. Hmm. Now that usually that's a spherical shape, but there are some shapes that could be non-spherical and be stable. Okay, uh, like you could you could imagine something that's kind of like a cigar shape that might be a stable shape if gravity is not going to make it break apart or it wouldn't spin apart or something. So there there are certain shapes that might not have to be spherical, but it's usually spherical or close to being spherical. I kind of feel like I'm reaching that in my old age. I'm kind of uh, orbiting yeah. the sun and becoming <laughs> spherical. <laughs> so far, Wayne, I'm or, a planet. <laughs> or, or maybe less spherical with age. I'm not sure. I don't know. Something in me is getting rounder. Uh, so so far problem so far you know i could argue that hey look i'm in a state of gravitational equilibrium and i orbit the sun uh so we need more grat we we need more defining characteristics of planets so we don't confuse them with with humans right so if we get more rounder that's a bad thing (laughs) that's a bad thing if an object in space gets more round then that that could be a good thing it might yes right right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, the but, dwarves uh, had round okay. stomachs, you know. The, the, yes. <laughs> so anyway, we're just uh, we're not uh, getting very sciencey here. I'm sorry. We're not going very fast here, but uh, <laughs> okay. There's a third rule for planets. It's got to have cleared its neighborhood around its orbit. So okay. this is the idea that it has to dominate the region around its orbit. So that if if there are small objects around it. Those objects would fall into the object, this, the larger object, right? Gotcha. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't just be stable in that in a certain region around it. So this is kind of a problem. One, the sec, the second and third of these rules is always a little subjective whether to say it has enough. So you, you always run into the question: Okay, if it's close to spherical. How round is round enough? Right. And then if it's cleared its neighbor, its area around its orbit, how cleared out is cleared out enough? So if you think about, say, Jupiter, Jupiter's really big, right? Nobody would say that Jupiter's not big enough to be a planet. Right. But um, it has more mass than all the other planets in our solar system put together by a long ways. And but Jupiter has asteroids that actually collect mm. around its orbit. 
yes. right in its orbit. Right. There's thousands of asteroids in Jupiter's orbit. In At the, the uh, uh, Lagrange points, correct? Yeah, we talk about the L4 and L5 Lagrange yes. points. Yes. They call them Jupiter and behind it. They call them Trojan rocks or something like that. I, they were yeah, not- well, the one group is called Trojan and the other call, is called the Greeks. Right. <laughs> Trojans and the Greeks, exactly. The Trojans and the Greeks. Well, and, and think about Earth. Okay, Earth is a planet. We all agree we're on a planet, right? And. Earth has objects around its orbit too, Dan. It you does. You not know this. And we put them there. There are there. We put no, some of them I don't there. mean satellites. I oh, mean okay. actual objects, uh, rocks that are like small asteroids. Wow. But they're very, very small. But they, there are objects that orbit around Earth's orbit in different ways, and they have a kind of really complicated, strange motion. Interesting. Uh, called the horseshoe motion. It's they're unusual. Okay, uh, but so how do how does this rule apply to Earth, and how does it apply to Saturn? I mean Saturn or or Jupiter. So there's always been some fuzziness in this, and I think it's not a good definition. Especially well, then because of the the, the rings. clearing out the orbit thing, right? You have rings, I mean, in every planet in our solar system. I say the gas giants, Neptune, Saturn. Jupiter, they all have, well, Saturn has rings aren't faint, but the other planets have small rings, uh, faint well, rings. Well, the rings are a different thing. The rings don't enter into this because, okay. Okay. you see, a ring is orbiting an object like Saturn, um, and, and any object that's orbiting a planet that's agreed on as being a planet <laughs> is not a planet. It's a, it can't be called a planet if it's orbiting a planet. We weren't talking about dwarf planets yet. We're talking about Earth. We're talking about planets, the regular definition of planets. And um, and like we said, up until 2006, I think the term was, correct me if I'm wrong, the term for, the term dwarf planets didn't exist. We've established that. That was 2006 when that came into being. But before that, it was a minor planet, wasn't it? There was some confusion about minor planets. Uh, yes. Yeah, so minor planet was a term that was for any Small objects that are not in another category, sort of. It's gotcha. So it it didn't. I don't think it meant asteroids. The asteroids are between Mars and Jupiter. Mm. Uh, but there are other small objects that were called minor planets. But gotcha. now the the term dwarf planet is is replacing the old term minor planet. Okay. Well, I was reading, and I don't know how accurate this this phrase is. Um, one article said that there are over there's 1.1 million known objects that are either dwarf planets or what they call SSSBs, small solar system bodies, which are comets yes. and asteroids and these little rocks you're talking about, trans-Neptunian objects, objects beyond Neptune. And uh, so... Scientists have classified, found, identified. I don't know exactly if the classification is settled. I don't know how anybody would be classifying over a million of these objects. I guess they're still trying. But there are over a million of these smaller objects. And so you can imagine, if that statistic is anywhere near close to being true, you can begin to imagine the magnitude of a classification problem that astronomers have on their hands. And I think, uh, Wayne, we could probably uh, attest this to the fact that our tools, uh, our telescopes, and our ability to detect these things have become increasingly greater. 
And so we've kind of created this classification problem for ourselves. It was a lot easier when you had the tin can Clive Tumbaugh and his homemade telescope uh, at Lowell Observatory. And he uh, he found uh, Pluto traversing the night sky near the constellation of Gemini. It was a lot easier to have classification schemes when you couldn't see that much, right? And now our technology has uncovered all of these fantastic objects and we're not quite sure how to uh to create classification schemes for all these things right yeah there's there's a the way this came about it goes back to when they wrote that definition of planets which was that i was talking about that Mm -hmm. comes from the international astronomical union in 2006 and about that time is when they discovered another one of these objects that's called Eris. Okay. Uh, when it was first discovered, they had not yet named it for some time. There were some months that they hadn't named it officially yet. It was actually called Xena for a while by people. For some reason, it was named after the uh, Xena character in the the TV show, the the warrior princess, the. If you you're familiar with that, uh-huh. but uh, but that was not the that's not the official name. It was now Eris is an interesting object because it's actually more massive than Pluto, so this is a pretty sizable object. It's exact size. I I don't have right now. Now, when you say little, massive, you're talking heavier, not necessarily bigger. Right. So what they found is. It's slightly smaller in size than Pluto, but it is more massive. Okay. So it's actually um, it's uh, more dense than Pluto is, hmm. and it's farther. Uh, well, it's it's in an eccentric orbit, a little more eccentric than Pluto's orbit, and it's um, when it it's closest to point to the sun is 38 AU, which is a little uh, a little inside Neptune's orbit. And, and an AU, and just for our listeners, an AU is an astronomical unit, which is 93 million miles, which is the distance from Earth to the sun, and that's how they measure these things in AU. Yes, yeah, that, yeah. that's our yardstick for the solar right. system. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so the, the longest distance it ever goes from the sun at aphelion is 97 AU. Okay, that thing's got a really eccentric orbit, doesn't That's it? That's Eris. So it's interesting when it when an object is out there as far as Pluto and it's more dense than Pluto, that really is an interesting thing. And because uh, in, in the scientist models of the solar system, you tend to you tend to expect that the farther they get from the sun, the more icy they would be and the lower their density would be but that doesn't always work if, if you ask people how many planets are there it used to be the answer was nine now the answer is eight not nine so pluto is pluto sort of got downgraded to it got planet. and this was um january 20 2005 um or 20 2003 or 2005 at some point um it was there was talk at the time about uh, it, Eris being the tenth planet, as you said, and so this this started the controversy, as you say, about uh, dwarf planet uh, uh, configurations, and then of course the controversy about poor Pluto, 
erupted in a in a uh, <laughs> media firestorm. How dare they demote planets? <laughs> we should just stop yes. build, stop building telescopes and satellites that can see further. We need to. Well, st- <laughs> you, I don't have a problem with it actually because. The reason they redefined it, I think it was kind of necessary because, Dan, they got to where they could detect and and get photographs of these smaller objects than used to be they could detect and see all these objects. Right. Telescopes and things were not good enough. And now we have spacecraft out there that can see more than we can see from Earth. And so there's lots of objects out there beyond Neptune. Well, there's actually quite a quite a few of them. So if they had not uh, changed the definition so that Pluto was not a planet, then they would be forced with, should we add a hundred more pl- objects to the list of planets? Right. They didn't. Right. They didn't want to have a hundred uh, or two hundred planets. They, so they decided to uh, kind of demote Pluto. Mm-hmm. Now, there's so much more fun stuff about uh, Pluto, um, but it was discovered in 1930 um, by a Kansas wheat farmer, a lay astronomer by the name of Clyde Tumbaugh. Clyde Tumbaugh. He was invited to the Lowell Observatory, and of course, Mr. Lowell was looking. He was an eccentric millionaire. I don't know if he was eccentric, but he was a millionaire, built a, a, a an observatory to uh, pinpoint the canales on Mars. That's a whole other story about what canales are and canals and all that stuff. But the Lowell Observatory was built to uh, to look more closely at the canals or canales. He brought uh, Clyde Tumbaugh was sending drawings of his to uh, Mr. Lowell. And Mr. Lowell offered, offered him a job. And um, I think if the story goes, he was looking at... Uh, he wasn't actually looking at a tele, looking through the telescope when he discovered Pluto. He was looking at photographic plates and noticed a particular negative uh, image of the stars. And flipping between the images, he saw the motion of a particular dot uh, near the constellation of Gemini and the star Wasat, and uh, recognized that uh, ultimately became uh, Pluto, the ninth planet. But now we know so much more. And New Horizons went out there and took wonderful pictures of, of Pluto. It looks like a, uh, a a moon cookie. Remember those moon cookies? They had uh, everyone I was growing up. I had a chocolate and a sugar cookie all kind of swirled together. And so yeah. uh, Pluto reminds me of a moon cookie, uh, though it's not a moon. Um, but, but it had that. It, it captivated our imagination because it had that uh, heart of ice on the front or a, a heart shaped region in the yeah. pic- in the pictures that uh, came back from New Horizons. Beautiful. Uh, imagery of of Pluto that we saw for the first time, and uh, that but we have a fondness for Pluto. Of course, it's named after Disney. The, no, it wasn't named after the Disney character. It was named after the Roman god. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. The the little girl was reading mythology. I forgot what her name was, but uh, she had named that. But anyway, there is a Pluto in Disney, and uh, so that's relevant to our seven dwarves <laughs> tie back. Um, but uh, I'm just rambling here, Wayne. Uh, you're trying to do science, and I'm just offering really bad color commentary. Um, let's talk about. <laughs> well, well, let's get back to the uh, to the definition of dwarf planet. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it now. If you ask scientists how many dwarf planets are there, they will either give you different numbers, or they might say it's unknown or undetermined. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there's not general agreement on some objects of whether they should be called 
dwarf planets or not. So why is there this uh, disagreement or uncertainty about whether they're a dwarf planet? Well, it gets back to how they defined planets. So the, the general ideas on dwarf planet relates to how they define planets. So remember, the one of the rules about uh, planets is, well, uh, for a planet, it's got to be orbiting the sun, right? Mm-hmm. But for a dwarf planet, it's... Um, it's not orbiting another planet, and it's and it's not orbiting a another dwarf planet either. It's not so. Pluto is a dwarf planet, but the large moon of Pluto called Charon, Charon is not a dwarf planet. Make make is a dwarf planet. Make make, and I found out uh, Wayne the name is from the Rapa Nui god of fertility. So make-make okay. is a good name for a god of fertility, right? I'm going to make-make some kids. Oh, yeah. In <laughs> fact, in fact, I think it's related. We had a program on uh, the uh, the statues on Easter Island. Dan, you remember yes. we talked about uh-huh. uh, Von Danigan and we did right. like Von Danigan's ideas. Well, one of the gods that used to be believed in on that island was make-make. Make mm-hmm. Maki Maki. I think Maki Maki. Mm-hmm. There's a connection to Easter Island and Maki yeah. Maki. Right. That's uh, one of the Rapa Nui gods, uh, the island of Rapa Nui. Uh, make Make. But Make Make has a moon. We, I'm getting way ahead of us. Uh, but uh, Hubble found found a, uh, it was about eight years ago. Yes. And Maki Maki also is uh, one of another category. You know, there's special terms for special categories of things. So the big category for Maki Maki is trans-Neptunian object, mm-hmm. TNO, TNO, because it's it's out there, it's out there around Neptune essentially in that region, or it can be beyond Neptune. So its its uh, orbit is a little bit eccentric, but not real. It's not elongated too much. It has one moon, um, and but it's. In another category that's called Cubano. Oh, my goodness. You're going to have to unpack that one. There, there are objects called Cubanos. Where they got this name, I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, what it means is out there beyond Neptune, there's, uh, well, there's hundreds at least and probably thousands of these uh, objects out there. Now, some of them, are very much influenced by Neptune, and they're in orbit resonances with Neptune. You know, there's there's asteroids that are in orbit resonance with Jupiter because Jupiter influences those asteroids a lot, mm-hmm. and it kind of controls certain areas. So Jupiter keeps keeps asteroids away from certain places in the asteroid belt. Okay. Something similar happens with TNOs and Neptune. So there are some TNOs that are influenced by Neptune and they're in orbit resonance with Neptune. There's a a special timing in their orbits. But there are also TNOs that are not controlled by Neptune in that way. So the ones that are not influenced by Neptune are the Cubanos. So there are some within the grasp of Neptune, some not in the grasp of Neptune. Yes. So, All right. So the Cubanos are out there at, close to Neptune, but they are 
they're they're moving in a way that's independent of Neptune. Okay, and we mentioned uh, we sort of jokingly, which I think it's a great name, Gong Gong, <laughs> is yes. is uh, is a, is a, a, a trans Newtonian, and uh, the name is a Chinese water god, like a serpent, kind of like a dragon with a semi-human face. And in Chinese lore, this god was believed to be responsible for chaos, floods, and the tilt of the earth. And uh, the name was chosen about four years ago when they did an online poll for the public to choose a name. And the name Gong Gong won. Okay. How about that? Uh, one thing I found out about Gong Gong, it's, it is one of those uh, TNOs that's in resonance with Neptune. So it's in that uh, group that are influenced by Neptune. And it's about the size of Pluto's moon, Charon. So it's a pretty sizable object. And they they debate, scientists debate, like how, how small could an object be for it to, um, for gravity to round off its shape. Mm. And uh, you'll hear different numbers, and nobody's really certain. It also depends on what it's made of. So, in other words, if it's a, if it's rock, mostly rocky, then it might uh, be smaller and round itself off into a spherical shape. But if it's um, ice, more icy, it might not be able to be as small as as a rock would be. Gotcha. So they will say sometimes 400 kilometers diameter. You might see 800 kilometers diameter to round itself off. Uh, but that's something. And these are not big objects, right? So we often don't know exactly how round they are. We can't know unless we can go out there and get a really good picture of it. Hmm. And you need a photo of it from more than one angle, at least, in order to tell what shape it is. Well, you know, we joked about, uh, we opened the program joking about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. There I go again, dwarfs. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> Before Gong Gong got its name, Wayne, there was a planetary scientist who uh, nicknamed Gong Gong Snow White because it was white and icy. At least it looked uh. icy. And, of course, why would a planetary scientist pick Snow White? Because by that time, uh, the team of astronomers looking for these TNOs had discovered seven other large trans-Neptunian objects which were collectively at one point in the history of this, the brief history of this, referred to as seven dwarfs. So at one point <laughs> in the history... I think I think she should have kept that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it would have made much more sense. So there really is a tieback to Disney here uh, about Snow White and the seven dwarfs. Now, to me, if they were going to be consistent, they should have just gone with Doc and Sneezy and Dopey and Sleepy. But, uh, of course, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there is. But anyway, that just fascinating how we name things and categorize things. But, uh, you know, it just goes to show you, as we say in our podcast, there is a human side to astronomy. And, and this is a fun process. I mean, yeah, there's maybe some scientific fisticuffs that go on and papers being thrown back and forth about how we're going to classify things. But in reality, you know, we're looking at this stuff because we love it. It's enjoyable. It's fun. 
It's mysterious. It's wonderful. It's a good story, right? And uh, yeah. so this is what we do. We we name things after the stories that uh, that mean things to us, that are meaningful to us. But anyway, I thought I'd, before Gong Gong was Gong Gong, he was Snow White. I wish they would have just kept that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well. Anyway, the, the Chinese, the Chinese probably like the Gong Gong. Yeah, we could be, don't want to make anyway. everything American, you know. So N- another really interesting one is called Halmia. Okay. Halmia has two moons and it has a ring. Halmia. And Halmia is not spherical, uh, but it's been called, it's considered a dwarf planet, even though it's not spherical. But it's one of these unusual ones that they think its length is about double its width. And if it's, think of it this way, if you have something that's shaped kind of like a cigar, at least in one dimension, if you slice the cigar in half, they would have a cross section that's round, right? Mm-hmm. Even though the other dimension is not round, uh, so it could be stable that way. So they they've considered that one to be a dwarf planet, even though it's not spherical. It's an ellipse. Uh, they and, call it an ellipsoid, right? Yes, they call it an ellipsoid. Uh, at least they think it is. They don't know. I mean, don't have really good photos of it. So they are judging the shape roughly from the brightness because gotcha. the brightness varies a lot. So they don't have close-up pictures of Haumea. Mm-hmm. So this is a, there's a little guesswork on this. And that's one of the problems with defining these objects is that we, we don't always have good enough photos to know their shape right. very much. And Haumea is, uh, has got two moons or two smaller bodies around it and uh yeah basically the name comes from the hawaiian goddess kind of the hawaiian version of artemis or diana uh, a goddess of fertility and childbirthing and that's where that name comes from and uh these were all uh talking about the discoveries of these things uh led by a team uh in 2004 mike brown of caltech and the palomar observatory in the u.s uh, was the team that came up with the, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and uh, these dwarf planets. They were on a team making these discoveries. Um, but you're right. There's so much because here's a fascinating thing, Wayne, right? If I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but the light of these of these objects, the reason it's somewhat of a challenge to kind of find their shape and their size or whatever is because the light we're actually seeing is light reflected from our sun, correct? These are There's nothing internally generating light. On these objects right. themselves, these are all reflecting and the sunlight, and they're faint because they're not very large, and they're way out there. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So until we have a spacecraft that can go out somewhere near near it and get a, some decent photos, we don't know mm-hmm. for sure about mm-hmm. the shape. Well, here's the fascinating thing, and I know this gets into uh, something we'll talk about. And I know you had a Bible verse, and I wanted to hear what you had to say. But, you know, it's fascinating to me, and this is one argument that that I think is powerfully talks about the universe being designed, is the idea that we can make these discoveries and that there are so many different objects that that can be classified. The very fact that we can classify these things, find them, detail them, study them, and uh, and classify them, like uh, Adam naming the animals, that, that God has built creation in such a way that part of what we do as stewards of creation is that we name things. And so yeah. here, here we are in the heavens doing exactly what what God had commanded Adam to do about the animals, and we're still making yes. discoveries and we're still naming things. 
And, uh-huh. you know, for all the technical stuff that is involved with naming planets and objects in space, I'm sure if you talk to astronomers that are involved with this, it's an enjoyable, creative, and fun kind of a process, you know? Um, it really yeah. is. Now, what uh, what scripture did you what, did dwarf plants bring to mind? I'm fascinated to know what, uh, what you have. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of John chapter 1, verse 3. Okay. And it says, Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And it goes on about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and so on. So in in him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, does that mean that God supernaturally created every dwarf planet? Well, I don't think we know this, okay? Now, I think very possibly God could have created asteroids or dwarf planets or any object that we see in space, but we don't know how much has happened since the beginning. That's where that's where science comes in. Right, you know? right. You're saying that uh, when God created everything in Genesis, did he let there be asteroids, let there be dwarf planets, and, and in a colloquial sense, that were these things created at the beginning of the universe or because of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics and decay and explosions and the ever-changing universe, how many of these things are as the result of the processes of the universe? In other words, they weren't supernaturally... Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so take Haumea. It has a, it's a non-spherical object, mm-hmm. uh, but it has a ring and it has two moons. Yeah. Now, um, the the non-spherical shape can be a puzzle to explain from naturalistic origins theories. Uh, that doesn't happen real easily, but because a long skinny object tends to get broken to pieces if mm-hmm. it, something hits it, mm-hmm. it can be fragile that way. But um, the two moons could could have come about since creation. Yeah, uh, or the ring could have formed since creation in some way, because something could have happened. There was a collision, or something ar- nearby it happened that led to something uh, forming there. So mm-hmm. I'm not ruling out the kind of processes that we know of from physics, but I don't necessarily go along with all the theories that scientists have on the formation of planets. I really right. am skeptical about planet formation, and especially for planets because they're larger. When it comes to smaller objects, there's more possibilities for how things could happen and how things might form from natural processes. Right. The the the, the idea of planetary formation and star formation, really. I mean, we've talked about, we've done an episode on star formation. Maybe we should do a one on planetary formation. I think we have a little bit, but we could revisit that. But the interesting yeah. thing is, is that if you assume the universe having a long, slow, gradual, naturalistic development, if you're just assuming that, you know, no God, it just naturally comes into being, the paradigms and the theories that you have to come up with in order to explain how planets form and how you get such an incredible difference, Wayne, in our own solar system between something like Earth 
and the lifeless worlds that are to the left and to the right of us. If, for to be colloquial, you know, we're talking about Mercury and Venus, and then then you have this amazing Earth, and then you have these giant gas orbs, and your your mind really has to sit down and try to figure out how in the world do you have such a diverse body of orbs forming naturalistically it would seem to me that if you are forming planets around a star in a naturalistic concept the the, the material that you have available to you if you will is pretty much going to be the same the, if the sun is forming and creating dust rings and planets come together because of collisions of things then you're really left you're bereft with having to come up with explanations that account for the radical differences in the kind of planets that we have in our own solar system. So I agree with you. It would seem really a lot harder to explain planets coming into existence that way. But the smaller an object is, you could certainly argue that uh, these, especially the ones that are strangely shaped, that these are the result of uh, entropic decay or collisions or supernovae yeah. or, or asteroid collisions or what have you. Uh, that debris is ejected from a moon or a planet and ends up in an orbit of some kind. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. Those could have been there at the beginning, or yeah. And then there's there's a whole there's a whole other uh, uh, branch of physics where physicists have tried to model on computers how small objects uh, could solid objects might stick together and collide and into a clump and then solidify or or become a larger and larger object, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's hard to explain. The physicists have had a lot of trouble explaining how that can work. Mm -hmm. Now, small objects, if they're coming together, if they're moving in space and they move toward each other, if they don't, if they hit too hard, they're going to break each other to pieces. <laughs> yes, correct. And, and if, if they're going... Just the right speed. In some cases, that is possible for them to stick together. And it looks, there are asteroids that looks like they have stuck together when they collided. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be because of things like ices or maybe organic materials that might refreeze after they hit, and that might mm -hmm. they might stick together. So there's things that might make objects stick together for some types of things but that does not work in explaining how planets form right and it doesn't really ex work for dwarf planets either because dwarf planets are in the scale of hundreds of kilometers in size now wayne we you mentioned uh earlier and i thought you could share with our listeners because this is fascinating to me that uh several of these dwarf planets that we've been talking about maki maki gong gong explain simply if you can the the process by which because you we talked about uh, you you mentioned the mass of eris and astronomers determine the mass of these things i mean we can't put them on a scale but how does the moon of these objects each one of them having a moon how does that help astronomers figure out the mass of the planet of these little objects well you have to uh, kind of compare it to something you know the mass of. Um, now, from its orbit, when you can, 
if you can determine its orbit well, and we can observe the orbits pretty well, you can see what mass would make it work in that orbit, essentially. Uh, sometimes the rotation of it can help you with figuring out some of this. Um, but for moons, you want to you want to first figure out what's the mass of the object it's orbiting. And then if you know the orbit of the moon in its orbit around the bigger object, then you can probably figure out its mass. Gotcha. But how convenient. You know, I just thought how serendipitous, how fortuitous that you have each one of these objects, at least uh, seven of them, uh, with a little moon that enables astronomers to do calculations and compute their mass. Oh, that was fantastic. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, God knew we were coming. Here, I'm going to help you out with this. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. This goes back to partly Kepler's laws, mm-hmm. uh, Johann Kepler, and it also goes back to the work of Isaac Newton and figuring out gravity. So if you, when yeah. you combine Newton's law of gravity with uh, what Kepler figured out about orbits, that helps you figure out a lot of things. Absolutely. and About about solar, our solar system. It, it, is, it is a fascinating, fascinating world. And we're just not even scratching the surface. But uh, some of these exoplanets, exoplanets, there I go again, Steve. Some of these uh, dwarf planets... Um, I mean, they just—it's like they have personalities to some degree. I'm not saying they're alive, of course, but but they reflect the personality of of, of our Creator in some sense. It's like uh, God's sculptures, you know. Whether these came about through processes in the in the universe or whether God created them, but at the beginning, He determined their place, you know. And yeah, and I just I just think they're they're fascinating because of the variety. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's what I'm getting there's at. There's a variety in these. So one of them that we haven't talked about that's a dwarf planet is called Sedna. Sedna. S-E-D-N-A. Sedna. Okay. And Sedna is a in a very elliptical orbit. Its orbit is as elliptical as a lot of uh, long-period comets. It's in an orbit very much like a long-period comet. Okay. So eccentricity is 0.85, which is really like really long, narrow, skinny orbit. And the perihelion, the point where it's closest to the sun, is 76 AU from the sun. That's and its the closest point. The that's its closest point. And the wow. aphelion go, goes out to 937 AU. Wow! How did they find this thing? Uh, they had to be quick on that one. <laughs> Wow! When, it's, when they're when they're in a long narrow orbit, it's uh, moving real fast when it comes in toward the sun. Mm, that's amazing. But it's uh, it's uh, Michael Brown's team uh, discovering these things in the early two thousands, um, creating these uh, uh, this collection, this new category of of uh, objects in space, and uh, just a wonderful, exciting. Uh, time in astronomy when we have the tools and the capabilities to see these things. It's just fantastic. There's another, there's a similar, well, I don't know, to me it's similar, but there's another group. We talked about these special categories like Cubueno. Well, there's another group of objects that are called centaurs. Centaurs. And centaurs, there's a, a handful of these in our solar system, and they are generally between... 
Saturn and Neptune. So they're they're farther out than the asteroids, but not as far out as the TNOs, although they might cross other orbits and they they kind of had longer uh, elliptical orbits and they often have very tilted orbits. Um, They would not, they would probably be called small bodies, not dwarf planets. Uh, So a dwarf planet is usually something that's uh, larger than most of the asteroids because it's on the scale of something like hundreds, uh, several hundred uh, kilometers in diameter. Um, So it's probably a spherical object most of the time. Uh, but the centaurs are the centaurs are smaller than that. But centaurs are rocky, so they're not a comet. Okay, not a comet, not an asteroid, not a dwarf planet. They are centaurs. That is very strange. But they would also be called small bodies because they're not big enough to be a dwarf planet. Okay, all right. <laughs> How about that? This may be confusing, but that's that's. Uh, the classification can be very confusing. Uh, but centaurs, centaurs are just—they uh, get—they they cross traffic. They—they they just get into the orbits of other planets. Sometimes. Well, yeah, they're in different orbits that cross the planet orbits, and they—they they kind of don't fit any other category. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, there's a really interesting dwarf planet also that I really don't want us to miss. Uh, it's a very interesting one called Quayoar. Quayawar. Let's talk about Quayawar. Quayawar. Or you might, sometimes I think it might be pronounced Quayawar. I'm not Quawar. sure. Quawar? Quawar? Yeah, I, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but it's right. a, it's another one of these that we call the Cubano. So it's it's out there by Neptune, but it's or beyond Neptune, and it's uh, not not influenced by Neptune. Kind of independent of Neptune, and it, it has a it has a, a moon with a cool name, Waywat. Yes, it does have a moon, and uh, the really interesting thing though was just recently discovered. Um, they were doing um, looking at some stars, and they saw that Quayawar had uh, what looks like a ring around it. Wow! So you know, so you can sometimes if you're looking. Looking at stars in a good telescope, you could see how something else blocks the light of the star momentarily. Mm. And so they were able to do that from nine different positions around Quayoar. And the thing that's unusual and surprising is the size of this ring. The ring is – now, they they don't actually have measurements of this or or sightings of it from all the way around it but from they have from about nine places around it okay so you can imagine them seeing stars at nine different places around this ring and so it's uneven one part of it they they thought it looked like it was about five kilometers thick and another part part of it was more like 300 uh kilometers thick or something so it has a thick part and a thin part and so it's on it's not uniform and uh it's way out there it's far much farther away from the object than is normal if 
there there are some other objects like some asteroids that have rings sometimes and we talked about Haumea and it's a dwarf planet with a ring but for Quayoar the ring is like more than twice as far away from the object that it should be so if you if you have something uh let's say a big object whatever big means <laughs> and you and you have another uh small object that's coming near it there's uh, a gravitational tidal forces what is a tidal force can pull an object apart when it comes close to a bigger object how why does that happen well it's because it, gravity the small object that comes near it gravity is strong enough on one side of it and and enough different than the gravity on the opposite side of it that it can literally pull it apart the co- the near side is pulled by gravity more than the far side of it wow if the moon got close enough to the earth earth could do that to the moon yeah i would imagine so but the moon's not going to do that it's drifting the other way right and it's it's not that close but this limit of how far it can how close it could be before tidal forces would break it up it's called the roche limit hmm. and so most of the time in the solar system rings are inside or mostly inside the Roche limit. So they think that that's why the rings are there. That's because if something came inside that Roche limit, it tends to get broken up and it spreads out into a ring. Gotcha. But for Quayoar, the ring is like twice as far away, more than twice as far out as the Roche limit. That's amazing. And for so for a dwarf planet, scientists don't know how it got there. Wow. Now, the uh, I was just looking up some background as you were talking about Quayoar. The name comes from uh, a Native American tribe that was local to the L.A. region. And um, it was a, a deity that sang creation into existence. Um, so there's a... If you think of uh, Tolkien's narrative where all the, uh, the, the the angels are singing together and you think of Job and the sons of God shouting for joy, or the, the morning stars singing together, uh, here in a Native American lore you have this idea of, uh, of a God singing creation into being as well. So uh, kind of a neat little background story about that. Um, and, and their singing, the singing of Quayawar and the gods, uh, brings order out of chaos. So... Uh, Huh. About that. Okay, I uh, hadn't heard that. Yeah, that's just a little bit, little bit of background on the mythology of the names. A lot of these names do come from tribes and cultures, as we're noticing. I know we were having yes. some, some fun about the, the strangeness of the names to our native English tongues. But uh, these do have history and lore within the cultures from which they came. And uh, the International Astronomy uh, Astronomical Union is uh, does try to be true to its name in its international idea in giving names that are not just uh, from uh, North American English-speaking people, but uh, the heavens are uh, are for everybody. Yeah, and so, it's uh, always fascinating to me that so many objects out in space and even star names, they they go back to all sorts of fictional stories very often. Yeah, right. Well, uh, Brother Guy in our book, 
he has an asteroid or a, a meteor or an asteroid. Asteroid? Yeah, asteroid named after him. I think it's an asteroid. Well, he deserves it. He goes to the... Consulmano something with a number after it. Uh, yeah, he the, the work he does is directly related to that, so I think that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, they have a, on the Wikipedia site of uh, Quayawar, um they have a little uh, uh, illustration, which is kind of cool, uh, of an animation put together over five hours, four and a half hours, uh, showing how they discovered Quayawar. And it's fascinating because when they had originally found it in, um, it was, I think it was 2007, uh, they thought it might be Planet X because it was so bright. They thought it might be really big. Um, but it, as they've turned out, it's not quite what they thought it was. So they called it Planet X, and there was a lot of talk about uh, there being a 10th planet out there, but uh, the the brightness of this is pretty fantastic. You can see it for yourself on the website there. Another thing about Quail War that's a little unusual compared to comparing to a lot of these TNOs, it's a TNO, but its eccentricity is very, very low. It's almost in a perfectly circular orbit. Wow. And that's, that's not amazing. usually the case for TNOs. That's amazing. Do they know why it's perfectly circular? No, I think that it would it'd be a lot easier to explain if God just created it this way with the ring. But, <laughs> but the, when, right. the fact that the ring is is very uh, non-uniform suggests that something happened there. I don't know what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it possible that there's another unseen object nearby uh, impacting the the shape of the ring? That we can't yes, see. Yes, uh, like for example, in Saturn's rings, there are uh, moons just inside or outside certain rings, and the moons affect the shape of the rings. Mm. And when a moon will pass by, it might make sort of something like a ripple in the rings. Okay. Or things like this can happen between objects in Saturn's rings. So, and and sometimes. The, the little moons in Saturn's rings um, do some interesting interaction with each other. They can move each other around. So, but what, with something like Quayawar, we we can't see see it clearly. Okay, we're so it's one of those things that it would really help if we could send a spacecraft out there and find out what's going on. Yeah, that would be great. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to just send a spacecraft to everything that intrigues us? Yeah. We could see it up close. and uh, That would be it. a lot like uh, sending a spacecraft out to Pluto because it's out there in the same neighborhood, out there close to Neptune. Now, uh, New Horizons is long past uh, Pluto, so we've got yeah. all, the pic- all the pictures that we're going to get we have unless we send another mission there, correct? Right. It, yeah. was, a, it was a very high-speed spacecraft the fastest moving spacecraft ever made and it zipped by pluto and was gone in a flash Mm, mm. (laughs) well the gentleman who is uh primarily responsible for a lot of these discoveries michael brown um (laughs) there's a quote from him he he said uh that uh, a planetoid is a perfectly good word they used to use the word planetoid for these things they've been used for years and he said the use of the term dwarf planet for a non-planet is dumb (laughs) <laughs> so anyway there's been a lot of heated back and forth about naming these things but you know really astronomers yeah. do do this because they love what they do 
You know, you don't go looking for things in the sky unless you you really enjoy it. And uh, I enjoy talking about it. It's fun to, to talk about. Uh, yeah, and just because, like, well, people complained about Pluto not being a planet, but it's no less interesting just because it's a dwarf planet. You know, right? I, I don't care if it's called a planet or a dwarf planet. I, it's one of the most fascinating things in the solar system. Absolutely. As far as Absolutely. I'm concerned, it's, it's now, really interesting. Uh, Wayne, can you see, I don't think you can see any of these things. If you have a, you have to have a really high powered telescope, don't you? I, I can't see Pluto with yeah. my telescope. Yeah. You can't pick these up. I can barely get Uranus and Neptune on my, on my telescope as it is. These aren't things you're going to be able to see with the naked eye. You got to be, uh, uh, have a deep sky object, uh, ability. Now, there. uh, Ceres is an asteroid. It's a dwarf planet and it's, it's a lot closer than these TNOs. Mm. All these other dwarf planets are way out there by Neptune, but Ceres is bigger and it's um, a lot closer. So I don't know how big of a telescope you'd have to have to see Ceres. Mm. Mm. Now, um, we haven't talked about this, but uh, a lot of these uh, dwarf planets are in what they call the Kuiper Belt, right? Yes. What is the Kuiper Belt, Wayne? It's an old term uh, that's not used anymore, actually. Kuiper Belt was uh, a certain, kind of a certain distance around Neptune's orbit, sort of. Okay. But they started, stopped using that, and they start started using the trans-Neptunian object okay. label. All and, right. And that is, covers a bigger area. Because they they kept finding more and more objects out there, and gotcha. some of them are out there at a big distance, a long ways away. Okay. So they wanted uh, a term that would cover more objects. I think. So Kuiper Belt is kind of like saying VHS tape. <laughs> it's kind of the the near side of the TNO region. All right, near Whereas side of the, the TNO region. Gotcha. The the TNO is the covers that and goes out farther. It's kind of the All way right. I look at it. Yeah. So, Wayne, is it uh, is it a so the the idea of dwarf planet is it still a murky, fuzzy thing, or do, does there, do we have a solid working definition of dwarf planet, or what's what's the status of this term right now? Uh, there's not a, a, a totally agreed upon definition, but it it's based on the definition of planet is the general idea. So. They don't want if it's a dwarf planet, it can't orbit another object that's called a dwarf planet. Uh, and I talked about that for Karen, Pluto's big moon, right? And then uh, it has to have um, enough mass that its shape is r- close to spherical. It has to have that gravi- that um, uh, equilibrium shape that they talk about. And so that that part of it makes it like a planet. But the problem is, how do we know if that's the shape? Because <laughs> these objects are hard to get a picture of in many cases. And then another thing is that um, dwarf planets are not able to dominate it around its orbit. So other small bodies near it might stay near it. In other words, they, they mean they, it's not going to necessarily clear out its orbit area around its orbit like a planet would. 
So all of this, uh, all of these uh, floating rocks out in the cosmos, are just a smidgen, a part and parcel of what uh, David says in Psalm 19 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals all this wonderful knowledge. So look at That's all the right. stuff, all this, uh, all this dedicated research finding out what all of this is about and and the the whole discipline of astronomy exists and cosmology and astrophysics exist because night unto night day unto day reveals speech and knowledge we get uh, a better understanding of who God is, even if you don't acknowledge him. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They're studied by all who delight in them. Yeah, not, night after night displays knowledge. Yeah. And so yeah. even if you're not a believer and you're studying astronomy, uh, you are delighting in God's creation. And that's the way he intended creation to be, is for yeah. us to, to make discoveries. Uh, I think it was it's Proverbs 25.2, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to find things out. So astronomers are kind of like little kings discovering what God has hidden. <laughs> That's you know? right. The things that get scientists most uh, engaged and fascinated about these small objects like this is often what they're made of because um, they kind of look for certain patterns based on the distance uh, uh, something is from the sun that it will get less dense as you get farther from the sun and if it's in a region of the asteroids it's expect to have they expect it to have more rock if it's farther out like around Jupiter or Saturn it'll have more ice and there's certain things that tend to be true a lot but like that but they're not always the case and when you get to these small objects like when they found Eris Eris is way out there, and it's um, more dense than Pluto. And that raises questions that scientists haven't de- resolved, really. What is it made of? Mm-hmm. Maybe substances we've yet to discover. And sometimes the, the different types of compositions of some, some objects are icy, some have are carbonaceous, which means they have organic material in them, and some are rocky, some are metallic. Sometimes they get mixed together in parts of the solar system. You wouldn't expect them to be there. So these these are the kind of things that scientists get interested in. And Guy Consolmagno studies uh, meteorites, and, and, and he studies things about asteroids, right? So he, he deals with a lot of these questions about the composition of things. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, fascinating stuff, Wayne. It has been a a fun whirlwind tour of dwarf planets and how they got their names and what's out there. And there's uh, plenty of fun information out there on the net for you to look at. Yeah, in fact, Dan, I we should keep a watch out on uh, anything from the new James Webb Space Telescope. Yes, because it could they could look at some of the dwarf planets right well they've been looking at uh, exoplanets we just did i just did a real quick podcast on uh, 
on one exoplanet that was uh, looked at by the James Webb and what they found. Yeah. Uh, that's up right now on Good Heavens. You can check that out. And uh, so we'll definitely do a follow-up um, on uh, – we need to do some more follow-ups on uh, James Webb discoveries. It's uh, promising, shaping up to uh, change our perspective on the cosmos. Yeah, once in a while they do something – look at something in the solar system with James Webb. And I'm really interested when they do that because they find some interesting things. Yeah, can't wait to uh, see what else is uncovered. Really enjoyed uh, making some of these discoveries with you. And uh, a lot of the things that you share with me – as you know, maybe our listeners don't know. I I learn on air right when we uh, turn on. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't know that. So it's always fun to pick your brain and listen to the stuff that you've learned about uh, Wayne. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us tonight. Well, yeah, and I don't know the, all the interesting stories, and I don't have all the kind of a library you have. Or <laughs> uh, to keep track of all these interesting terms and words, and well, that's I'm I'm color uh, commentator. You know, yeah. I'm uh, I'm just uh, the 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 John Madden. <laughs> you're the you're the science guy. I'm just the color guy. <laughs> well, we're bringing in the different sides of the thing. Yeah. This is what we what I call the human side of astronomy. Right, it's, right. It's multiple sides of the whole topic. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. It's not just science. We love to tell stories. There's absolutely a human side to astronomy. We look at the universe because it's beautiful, because it can be explored, and uh, because God created it to be explored and to be known and uh, for us to take delight in it. And so uh, we here at Good Heavens hope that you are delighting in the cosmos as much as we are uh, talking about it. And, uh, you know, this is a weird thing that it's a podcast. Uh, astronomy is a very visual thing, but uh, I'm, uh, I think it's been a blessing, Wayne, to be able to have a podcast about a, a visual discipline. And we've been doing this now going on six years. Can you believe it? Six years this September. Uh, yeah, doing good heavens. Uh, so, um, oh, uh, Dan, there's something I would like to mention to our listeners. Absolutely, uh, we are coming up on Easter soon, and uh, not long from now. And it's two years ago now that we did a series of programs that we started with uh, two programs about calendar systems, and then we did that to lead up to a, a program. Um, we call it the uh, the Lamb of God, and this was dealing with some things about the last week of Christ, the date of the crucifixion, and how this how calendar systems can help understand some things about the Gospels in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So that that was very significant to me, and I would just like to encourage our listeners, especially if you're new to Good Heavens. Go back and find uh, the programs on calendars and uh, uh, the Lamb of God in April, March, April of 2021. I'll put links to those in the notes so you can check those out. Yeah. All right, Wayne, it's been fun and um, look forward to uh, future chats uh, about what's going on with James Webb and uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about Pluto. Uh, but a fun little romp through uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Dwarfs. I did it. Okay. I did it. I did it, I I did did it, it again. again. Right at the end. But oh, oh well. well. Uh, just call me dopey. Um, but anyway, Wayne, <laughs> we will see you right here again next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. <laughs>